0: We are going to be in the Gospel of John this morning. If any of you are new here, my name is Thomas. I am Jeremy, Jeremy's a right-hand man, second person on staff of our staff of two. He is the teaching pastor. I come around and teach every now and then. But we are going to be in the Gospel of John. Our text this morning is verses 14 through 18 in chapter 1. While you're turning there, we have been looking uh, at the prologue, so in case you have missed, well, I preach once a month, so the last three months um, on those random Sundays that I preach. In case you missed that, we have been looking, uh, working our way through the first part of John's gospel, which is the prologue, this first section of, of his gospel, that's the first 18 verses, this opening section. And... The part we're going to look at this morning is the third and final part of the prologue. And as we've said before, the, the prologue, the purpose of it, so J- John's giving his gospel narrative. He's going to tell, he's going to present the story of Jesus Christ and tell, recount his life and ministry um, to those he's writing to. And his gospel narrative, the actual story, if you will, doesn't start until verse 19. The prologue he's put up front as an introduction Basically, to set the stage for this account that he's about to give concerning the life and ministry of Christ. And so, in this prologue, John has so far given, in the first five verses, the background of his account. In verses 6 through 13, he's given an overview of his gospel account. And finally, in our text this morning, verses 14 through 18, he's going to provide an explanation of his account, basically to explain the significance of what he's about to tell his readers. And in this introductory section of his gospel, John has presented Jesus as he truly is. He has presented him as the eternal life-giving word through whom all things were created. He has presented him as the true light through whom fallen men may become children of God. And finally, in the section we are going to cover this morning, he presents him as the divine son through whom men may come to truly know God. So let's read verses 14 through 18. John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. All right, so one thing we must keep in mind when we are reading John's gospel is that it is evangelistic and that it was specifically written with a Jewish audience in mind. John was writing to those who worship the God of Israel who lived under the law of Moses, and who were still waiting for the Christ to come. John's message to them was that the Christ had, in fact, already come, and that the Christ, the divine Son of God, is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And in the final portion of this prologue, John presents Jesus as the one in whom the glory of God, the grace of God, and the knowledge of God is most fully displayed. In verse 14 we see that John once again speaks of the word, the word. And that's the term he used at the beginning of his prologue as a proper name for the eternal, pre-existent divine person who is the Christ. If you look back to verses 1-2, through two, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So, the Word is this term is used as a proper name for the eternal, preexistent, divine person who is the Christ. And in the background, in verses 1-5, through five, John said that the, the Word has been in fellowship with God, this one who is the Word, has been in fellowship with God since eternity past, and Not only was he with God since eternity past, he himself is fully God and the one through whom all things were made. And then in verses 6 through 13, John said that the word came into the world as the true light and that the world did not know him for who he truly is while he was here. The world did not know him. And even his own people, That is, the Jews, the people of Israel, to whom he came. They had been waiting for the promised Christ to come. Even they, when he came, did not receive him when he made himself known to them. They, as a nation, collectively rejected him as a whole, as a nation. However, however, there were nonetheless individuals who did receive him. You hear me all right? Use my stage voice. (laughs) So, the nation, the people to whom the Christ belonged, the promised Messiah, was the one Israel waited for. He came to them. They, as a nation, rejected him. They did not receive him. But John did say that there were nonetheless individuals who did receive him individuals in the nation. The nation collectively, corporately, The majority of them rejected him, but yet there were individuals who did recognize him and acknowledge him and receive him as the Christ. And John said that they believed in his name because they were born of God. And to them, he gave the rights. Christ gave the right to become children of God. And this is what happened when the word was in the world, which by the time that John wrote this gospel of his was half a century ago. He wrote this gospel sometime between 80 and 90 AD. So we're talking about 50 years after Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected, and ascended into heaven some 50 years later. So John is telling them what transpired in verses 6 through 13. Here's what transpired 50 years ago. Now, in verses 14 through 18, the Apostle John explains the tremendous significance of, of the person and work of Jesus, who is the Christ, the true light, the life-giving word. As one of those individuals who believed in his name and received him, and who not only listened to his teaching and witnessed his works firsthand, but who also was personally close to him, John, the disciple and the apostle, John tells his Jewish readers that Jesus is the one to whom they must turn if they are to know God truly. For it is in and through Jesus that God is most fully displayed. John writes in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal person who enjoyed face-to-face communion with God the Father since eternity past and is himself fully God, Having life in himself and being the creator of all things, this one, John says, became flesh. That is, he fully and personally entered the world that he created by becoming a man. He is the God-man. He was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and then, as every man is, he was born into this world. And he dwelt among us as one of us, fully God and yet fully man. This was not merely God temporarily appearing as a man, as he had long ago to Abraham and to Jacob, for example, where he we call that a theophany, a manifestation of the presence of God. And sometimes that was him appearing as a man. This is not the same thing. He did not temporarily appear as a man. John says this was God permanently becoming a man. He became flesh. In other words, the second person of the triune God added humanity to his deity. So when it says he became a man, when a husband becomes a father... He does not cease to be a husband, does he? We're saying he added that identity to his existing identity. He is now a husband and a father. When God became man, God the Son became man, he was still fully God and he became fully man. He added humanity to his deity with the result that he would forevermore be the God-man, God in the flesh, the perfect image of the invisible God, The exact imprint of his nature, as it says in Hebrews. Now John continues with his personal eyewitness testimony, writing also on behalf of those who, like him, had believed in and received Jesus as the Christ, and were also eyewitnesses to the reality that he was and is God in the flesh. John writes and the rest of, well, in 14, we'll read the beginning of that. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and... We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The basic meaning of the word glory is weightiness or heaviness. That's the basic meaning of the word glory. And when it's used in reference to God, it is speaking of his greatness, his majesty, And his grandeur, his glory emanates from his infinite supremacy, his absolute goodness, and his holy perfections. Throughout scripture we read of his glory often being manifested as blazing light with the appearance of a consuming fire. This was an awesome, visible manifestation of God's personal presence. God's not literally fire, and yet he chooses to manifest his personal presence to make it visible in some way. And the way he chooses to do that is for it to appear as blazing light with the appearance of a consuming fire. And this kind of display was fitting because it reflected the reality that God in his essence is light. Meaning he's holy and perfect in every way. How do you visibly demonstrate that? Light. Holy and perfect in every way. Light. In him there is no darkness at all. He is holy. He is perfect. This is how he appeared to his people, the Israelites, when he led them in the wilderness after delivering them from bondage in Egypt. He manifested his personal presence to them as a pillar of cloud and fire. We read in Exodus 24, 16 through 17. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. On the top of the mountain. In the sight of the people of Israel. They could see his presence. That he had manifested to them. To show them that he was personally with them. Now at this point God told Moses to. In this passage. God told Moses to have the people. Build a tabernacle as a sanctuary for him. So that he might dwell in their midst. And. Another way to understand that is he would cause his presence to dwell in their midst. And at the end of Exodus, after the people's completion of the construction of this tabernacle, which is this dwelling place, this tent, built for God, we read the following in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meaning and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meaning because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord Build the tabernacle. Now, here's John's testimony. God had once again visited his people and personally dwelled in their midst. Remember, he's writing to Jews, right? This would sound familiar to them. And, God, and John is saying that God has once again visited them and personally dwelled in their midst. Except this time, his presence was not visibly manifested as light's but visibly manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Not as light, but visibly and physically manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. The eternal word who had become flesh. And as the one and only son of God who is both fully God and fully man, Jesus is the embodiment of God's glory and personal presence. He's the embodiment of the glory of God. Jesus is the one in whom the glory of God is most fully displayed. Now, John described the glory of God displayed in the person of the Son as being what? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. John's description here is reminiscent of Moses' account of his personal witness of the glory of God on Mount Sinai. Moses asked that God would show him his glory as affirmation of his favor and so that he might know him more. He said, show me your ways. Show me your glory. If I've received favor in your sight. God's response to Moses' request was as follows. And he said, God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord. And by the way, when you see that, it doesn't have it in here, but in, in, your, in your Bibles, the Lord, Lord is in all caps. That's a substitution for the name of God, the personal name of God, Yahweh, which has a basic meaning of he is or I am. So when you see that, that's the personal name of God. I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So obviously God is using anthropomorphism, so basically terms that, I mean, he's not, he doesn't literally cover him with a a human hand or one like ours, right? But we get, it helps us understand what is happening. It's giving us this encounter and this experience in language we can understand, that we can picture. But nonetheless, God is going to cause his goodness to pass over Moses. And Moses is going to witness the personal presence of God in in a way that uh, no one has seen before. God is going to privilege him with this because he has indeed found favor in his sight. And yet we see it's limited. It's limited. So an important point to note here is that the experience of beholding God's glory, if we look at how God responded to Moses, an import, uh, the experience of beholding his glory would not just be an up-close and, uh, up and personal view of God's personal pre- presence manifested as blazing light. That's not it. It's not only that. It would also be an obtaining of greater awareness and knowledge of the holiness and goodness of God. Moses wanted to see God's glory, and God said, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass before you. I'll proclaim my name. So in Moses, what Moses is going to witness is not just the visibly manifested presence of God in blazing light, but he's also going to behold and come to a greater awareness of what he sees, the goodness and holiness of God in his presence. So when Moses sees the glory of God, we don't read of the actual account where we, see, we read of Moses seeing the glory of God, we don't read of the blazing light of God's presence. But we read instead of the overwhelming goodness of God. Here's the account. In Exodus Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. That's his personal name. A God merciful And gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. His goodness passing before Moses. He proclaims his name, proclaims his goodness. And that last phrase, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that is reflected in John's statement concerning the glory he and the other disciples beheld in Jesus God, in the presence of Moses, proclaimed of himself that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Hebrew word translated as steadfast love in the ESV. ESV says steadfast love. Um, In the New American Standard, it's translated as loving kindness, abounding in loving kindness. The Hebrew word is kesed, which is defined as loyalty, faithfulness, goodness, and graciousness. When used of God, it is most often referring to his unfailing commitment to those whom he has graciously set his love upon. It is his his special favor, his loyal love, his special favor. And the Greek word that John uses then in the prologue here, speaking of the glory seen in Christ, is charis, which means grace, favor, and goodwill and obviously in our bible is translated as grace and it's a fitting substitute for that hebrew word grace favor goodwill substitution for this hebrew word that is defined as loyalty faithfulness goodness and graciousness translated as loving kindness it's translated as grace God proclaimed to Moses that he is abounding not only in steadfast love but also in faithfulness faithfulness which could just as well be translated as truth as it is in New American Standard New King James and the Christian Standard Bibles those translations say he's abounding in steadfast love and truth the manifested goodness that Moses beheld in other words in the presence of God on Mount Sinai is what John says he and the other disciples beheld in the presence of Jesus. Jesus' glory, in other words, is the same glory. Because he himself is fully God. He is the incarnation of the eternal word. And as it is stated in Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprints of his nature. Even before his incarnation, before he became flesh and was born into this world, he pre-existed as the divine son. Now in verse 14, John is saying that Jesus is God the son sent from heaven who possesses the same glory as God the father as witnessed in his personal Goodness, that is, being full of grace and truth, as he says. And when we read John's gospel, as we work through it, we're going to see that John doesn't give an account of the transfiguration, where Jesus actually revealed, manifest the, the intrinsic glory that he possessed as being fully God, that blazing light that shone from him. John doesn't give that account in his gospel. But what John talks about in his prologue, it's not, again, just the aspect of that, that holiness and goodness manifested as blazing light, but the goodness of Jesus in nature. That's the glory John's talking about. He was full of grace and truth. We saw the goodness of God in him. That's the glory, the same glory that he, the Father, God the Father has, he possessed as the Son from the Father. Then, in verse 15... John appeals to the enduring testimony of the prophet, John the Baptist, who himself bore witness to the divine nature of Jesus. So John's made, he's making these, these tremendous claims concerning the man, Jesus Christ. He is saying that he is eternal. He preexisted. He is God the Son. And then he points to, he appeals to the prophet, John the Baptist, his testimony. God had raised up the prophet among the people of Israel. First time in over 400 years since they had heard a word from the Lord through a prophet. And John the Baptist was this prophet that God had raised up to be the forerunner of the Christ. And John bore witness concerning this man, Jesus. He said, John writes this of John the Baptist. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, John the Baptist was esteemed by the Jewish people because he was rightly recognized as a prophet of God. The Apostle John will give a fuller account of John the Baptist's testimony concerning Jesus in the beginning of his narrative, which starts after this prologue, but he chose to include this one part of John the Baptist's prophetic statement to reinforce his own testimony that Jesus is the eternal word who became flesh. So we'll get to the rest of, of John's testimony, but, but the apostle John included this one statement because it, it is uh, confirming what he is saying of Jesus. He is the eternal word become flesh. The statement from John the Baptist is what he said of Jesus after God had revealed to him that he was the Christ. Before this point, John the Baptist had made the following statement to the crowds who came to him. He, he, he Basically, he's the forerunner. He's trying to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. And here's what he said to the crowds. So this is during the preparation time, before Jesus is manifested, before he comes onto the scene publicly. John tells the crowds, he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. As we read earlier in the prologue, John came to bear witness about the light in verse 8. And in verse 9, the true light was coming into the world. And after John had witnessed the Holy Spirit descend upon and remain upon Jesus, which confirmed that Jesus was the coming one of whom he spoke. That was a sign that God gave to John. He said, when you see the Holy Spirit descend and remain upon him, he is the one. That is the one who you are preparing the way for. You will know that it is him. So John had witnessed this event, and after he had seen it, he pointed to Jesus and said, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before him, because he was before me. Now, listen, John the Baptist was older than Jesus. He was six months older than Jesus. He was born before Jesus. So he's older than Jesus. And his public ministry began before Jesus' public ministry. So when he says that Jesus was before him, he is acknowledging the fact that Jesus, what? Pre-existed. Pre-existed. That before he was born in the flesh, he was existing in the presence of God, the father, and he has now come into the world. He is the divine son who has come to us from the father and is one in essence with the father. He is therefore the Lord, all caps. He is Yahweh. He is the God of Israel who has come and visited his people. He was not a man sent from God as John the Baptist was. He is God who became man, the man Jesus Christ. The Apostle John clarifies that because of who Jesus truly is, even John the Baptist, whose ministry preceded and paved the way for Jesus' ministry, even John the Baptist cannot be said to have given anything to Jesus. Prepared the way for him. He preceded it. He came before him. But he cannot be said to have given anything to Jesus. It was actually Jesus, the divine Son, the Lord Himself, who had given everything to John the Baptist. Because He is the eternal, life giving Word who is full of grace and truth. The Apostle John says in verse 16, From His fullness, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. But notice that statement. John affirms. Jesus pre-existed. He is greater than I because He existed before me. He's pointing to His eternal, uh, the reality that He is the eternal One, God who has come. And therefore, what John puts that statement in there, and he says, "From His fullness, as God the Son, we have all received. We have all received grace upon grace. It is out. In other words, it's out of the fullness of Christ that we receive." The divine blessing of grace and truth. Remember he said full of grace and truth. This is what the the glory that Christ possesses. He's full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have all received. Received what? The divine blessing of grace and truth. He himself is perfectly gracious and true and therefore full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we who believe in and receive him and believe in his name, we receive divine grace and truth. In other words, those who believe in the name of Jesus have received divine grace and truth because they have received the one who is the source of divine grace and truth. And at the end of verse 16, there's a phrase, grace upon grace. You see that grace upon grace. And it's separated by a comma there. So the statement is from his fullness, we've all received. And then John adds grace upon grace. Now, there's a Greek preposition that means upon, upon. But that is not the preposition John uses. The preposition he uses is one that specifically means in place of or instead of. In place of or instead of. That is its meaning. And it's used to indicate that something is replaced by something else. So what John adds... And the point he is making at the end of verse 16 is that the reception of divine grace and truth from the fullness of Christ is one specific grace that replaces another specific grace. It is a grace that has replaced another grace. Another way to put it is that the blessing that has come through faith in Jesus is a grace that has replaced a former grace. And what John is implying is that the latter grace that has come through Jesus is greater than the former grace. And here's how we know what John's getting at, because he expands on and clarifies this point in the following verse. For or because the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what is the former grace that has been replaced? It is the law of God given through Moses to the people of Israel. The latter grace that has come is the grace and truth of God given through Jesus Christ to those who believe in his name. One grace that was truly good has been replaced by another grace that is truly greater now, you might be wondering, how could the law be considered the grace of God? Right? Maybe we're thinking of, doesn't Paul kind of pit the two against each other to make an argument about under the law or under grace? So how could, how could the law be considered the grace of God? Well, that's not all Paul does says about the law. He does say the law is holy and good. In one sense, yes, the law does bring condemnation to all because no one can perfectly satisfy its righteous demands. The righteous standards of God all fall short, right? So it does bring condemnation to all. So that's not necessarily positive. However, it is nonetheless, and we can't forget this, the law of God is the revelation of God, and it is the revelation of his nature, his character, and his will. And it was given to the Israelites in the context of God's covenant with them, his gracious choice to set his love upon them above all peoples and to make a covenant with them, to enter into a, uh, a covenant with them, enter into a relationship with them to be their God and they would be his people in a special, unique way. That was the context in which he gave them his law. God's law supplied the people of Israel with wisdom and understanding that the nations around them did not possess. It distinguished them as his treasured possession among all peoples. When the Apostle Paul spoke of his fellow Jews that he longed to reach for Christ, he said of them, in his letter to the Romans, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption of, The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. All those are good things. Glory, covenants, adoption, worship, promise. And he says the giving of the law. It belongs to them. This is a special thing. It was a gracious gift of God to them. However, the law was not an end in and of itself. It was not an end in itself. It revealed to the people of Israel the righteousness of God, yes. And it made them more fully aware of their own sin and their own lack of righteousness and thus their need for salvation through the Christ, the righteous one, who was promised to come and fulfill the righteous requirement of the law on their behalf so that they might receive righteousness as a gift through faith In the Christ. Through faith in him. You see that? So the law served a good purpose. It was a good and gracious gift. But it wasn't meant to be the end in itself. It pointed them to the greater need. To the greater one. The righteous one. The Christ. Upon whom they set their hope. Paul wrote this in Galatians. So then. Speaking of again the law. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It was our guardian until Christ came. And then he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And he says in his letter to the Romans that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes so the way god had related to his people was through the covenant the giving of his law this is how he would relate to them and relate to him the terms of their covenants how they were to live before him how he would deal with them it revealed himself like his character his nature his will that was that age the period before christ came but christ has come now and what does paul say because of what christ has accomplished he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Why? Because he fulfilled it himself. And through faith in him, we are credited with his righteousness. So there's no longer a purpose for the law. It points you to Christ. It pointed the people of Israel to Christ. He has now come. And now the gift of God has been manifested in Christ. It is the gift of his righteousness that comes through faith in his Son. Here's one author's explanation regarding John's statement in verse 17. I think. It's a good job of providing clarity again on this concept of the grace that has come through Jesus Christ now has replaced that former grace that was given to the people through the giving of the law. And then what John says, an explanation of that about the law given through Moses and grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ. Here's the explanation. The law was in its own day a light to those to whom it was given. But this former manifestation of God's gracious love and favor has now been replaced by a new personal and unique manifestation through his son. God's old methods of dealing with his people, the temple, the sacrificial system, and all the rituals of Judaism, have now been replaced by the sending of his son in love, in short, by the good news of the gospel. None of this implies that the old manifestation through Moses was not also a gracious act. We may compare the role of John the Baptist. He was a burning light in his generation, but he was superseded by the real light in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The good thing came first, the greater thing came came next, has surpassed it, has come in its place now. So the Jewish readers that John was aiming to reach, they had the highest regard for Moses. And they were still trying to relate to God by living according to the law. Which, by the way, was very difficult in their day because it had been a decade or so into after the fact that the temple had been destroyed in Jerusalem. But they're still trying to live according to the law. And John's point is that something greater than the law has come. And it has come through someone who is greater than Moses. God has brought the full realization of grace and truth and thus salvation to his people through Jesus Christ, his son. That's John's appeal. And then finally in verse 18... John concludes his prologue. He states, first, no one has ever seen God. Now throughout scripture we read of people who saw a manifestation of the personal presence of God, but they did not directly or fully see God himself, that is, in his essence. They may have heard his voice, but they did not See him. He is, as the Apostle Paul says, the invisible God. Who dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. If you recall, Moses, who had requested to see God's glory, was what? Only permitted to see God's back, if you will. Which can be understood to be the, the afterglow. Of the blazing light that God manifested his glory and personal presence as. So Moses' view of God was extremely limited. He did not truly see him fully. Because God said, no man shall see me and live. So Moses was not permitted to see God's face. That is the fullness of his personal presence. Right? When God says, You shall not see my face, he's saying, you, you cannot see the fullness of my personal presence. Man shall not see me and live, God says. There is one, however, John is saying, who is able to look upon the fullness of God's personal presence. More than that, this is one who enjoys intimate fellowship with God in the very presence of God, in the full presence of God. And here's what John says of him. Verse 18, he said, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Another translation, the Christian Standard Bible puts it this way, because that term only can, there's only and then God. So ESV says only God, but that term can also be understood as it was used in verse 14 as the only one, as in the only son. The one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This is similar to what John established at the beginning of his prologue concerning Jesus' true nature. He is the eternal word, who from the beginning was with God, meaning toward God, meaning face-to-face God, and face-to-face fellowship with God. And himself was fully God. And here John says that Jesus is... The only one from God, he is God the Son, who is continuously at the Father's side. Literally in the bosom of the Father, which is uh, an expression used to denote relational closeness. Relational closeness. And this personal closeness and the closeness to God and the knowledge of God the Father ultimately makes Jesus, the divine person, the divine Son, Uh, who is most qualified to make the Father known. He alone is the one who is most qualified to make the Father known, and he has done so with unparalleled precision. Jesus is greater than Moses. He did not bring the law, which does not save, but he brought the divine grace and truth that does save. He is the divine son sent from heaven, Sent from the Father's side, and he has made the Father known. Literally, he has explained him. It says make known. The word means explained him. God has given his revelation, but Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, and he has explained the Father more fully with far more precision than anyone possibly could. But he could do that because he is the one who came from the Father's side. He has explained the father what God had revealed of himself in the law and through the prophets. The son has explained in detail so that we might know him truly. So John says grace and truth, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As it opens in Hebrews, the first two verses, very similar point is being made also written to a Jewish audience, but these were to Jewish Christians to encourage them to remain in their faith in Christ and not be tempted to go back, revert to Judaism, to go back to the old covenant. Under the threat of persecution, the author is calling them to remain faithful to with Christ. So he's pointing to the greatness and supremacy of Christ and he opens this way, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And what is John trying to do in his gospel? Well, he's writing to Jews who have not yet embraced Christ as the Messiah, so Jewish unbelievers. And he's trying, again, to point to the supremacy and the glory of Christ to persuade them to place their faith to believe in him and and place their faith in him so john in his prologue has presented jesus as the christ the divine son the true light and the life-giving word who has come into the world and this sets the stage for his gospel account of the life and ministry of jesus that follows in which he demonstrates that jesus is indeed the christ the son of god and he calls upon his readers to believe in him so that they might have life in his name. So he's prepared us as well. The only way we can truly know God is by knowing Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God. He is the glory and grace of God. He is the one who has made God known fully. Grace and truth come through him. Salvation is in him alone. He said what? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, having the light of your word. And even more than that, Father, we thank you for sending your son, the true light, into this world to bring salvation to all who would believe on him. Because apart from your saving worth, we all would be in darkness. We would be in bondage to our sin. We would be darkened in our understanding. Our hearts would be hardened we would have continued and remained in our depravity because of our sin and because of the curse of sin and we would have had no hope but only condemnation and our only fate would have been to be condemned in the final judgment and we would all perish in hell. But you, Father, graciously have provided a way, have intervened by sending your son, that he might taste death for us and your wrath in our place upon the cross, that through faith in him, our punishment might be paid in full by virtue of his sacrifice and his righteousness might be credited to us. And Father, thank you for, for justifying us, for giving us forgiveness in his name and new life granting us your spirit, opening our eyes that we might understand the truth and truly know you. So, Father, we ask that you would, as those who have been rescued by your amazing grace, help us to, to live lives that are worthy of you, to, to honor you out of gratitude to praise and worship you by means of our words, our deeds, and our actions. That we might walk in the good works you prepared for us. That we might truly live as your people here and now because you've given us the means to do that. And and keep us from, from casting a judgmental eye on the rest of the world. We know the condition of the world. We were in the world and enslaved and in darkness just as they are. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to communicate the truth of the gospel. Which is the only means by which people can be rescued from their sins, forgiven, and reconciled to you. So we pray that you would help us be faithful in our testimony to the truth concerning your Son, and also in our, our conduct, that it would be pleasing to you and worthy of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in His name we pray. Amen.